Hello, you're listening to Cut Pathways, a podcast produced by Carnegie Mellon University. I'm Catherine Barbera. And I'm Dave Bernabo. This podcast dives into the university's archive of recorded oral histories to showcase the people that have made Carnegie Mellon what it is. Welcome to episode two of the Wild West of Computing. So we will start today's episode by talking about money and where it comes from and what it paid for. But just to get everybody on the same page, in the first episode of the Wild West of Computing, we looked at the origins of computer science at Carnegie Tech, now Carnegie Mellon. We heard stories about the first computers at the school, the IBM 650, the Bendix G20, and the G21. A PhD in computer science became a reality, and in 1965, the computer science department was founded. Andrew Mead McGee, who will join us again for this episode, summarizes the transition at Carnegie Tech from the mid-50s to the early 60s this way. The basic idea is this relatively small engineering-focused school also has attached a business school that has drawn some dynamic young professors who want to explore complex interrelated systems. And they feel the best way to do that is through a computer. And they convince the university president, Warner, and they convince the local business community to support the acquisition of what will be the institution's first electronic digital computer. The story that Americans like to tell about computers is that they come from garages and dorm rooms and that they're the product of lone genius hobbyists tinkering late into the night with wrenches and soldering irons and lines of code. Computers don't come from garages or dorm rooms. They come from government boardrooms because the American computing society, the computing industry, computing culture is built on the back of federal funding. In the case of Carnegie Institute of Technology, later Carnegie Mellon University, the fairy godmother that made its transformation possible is the military industrial complex, specifically the Advanced Research Projects Administration, ARPA, which will later become DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. Before ARPA, computer science at Carnegie Tech did receive some other funding. Richard King Mellon and Constance Mellon provided initial funding for the computer science department. Additional funding occasionally came from the National Science Foundation grants. And there was a National Institute of Mental Health grant that was awarded to the psychology department, some of which was used to fund computer science. But once Carnegie Tech and then Carnegie Mellon were funded by ARPA and then DARPA, the amount of funding and the frequency of funding became a game changer. CMU was the beneficiary of incredible largesse from a series of early ARPA directors who saw great potential in the broad experimental questions being asked by Carnegie faculty. 
and these uh, figures, J.C.R. Licklider, Bob Taylor, Bob Kahn, are directing money to Carnegie Tech, later CMU, for general research into the field of computing. This will become the basis for the exponential growth that shapes the foundation of the department and the school's reputation. CMU goes from a relatively obscure, quite frankly, backwater regional tech institute to a national computing powerhouse, such that by the 1980s, you can legitimately talk about a big three of computing with Carnegie Mellon, Stanford, and MIT. What makes that possible is this federal defense money. If you search for ARPA today, you may find the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021. But the ARPA that we are talking about is the Advanced Research Projects Agency, which was created in 1958 and later became DARPA in 1972 when they placed the word defense in front of ARPA. One of the largest early successes of ARPA was the ARPANET, Launched in 1969, the ARPANET connected four computers at four different universities. The University of California, Los Angeles, or UCLA, the Stanford Research Institute, University of California, Santa Barbara, and the University of Utah. By 1971, 12 computers were talking to each other, and CMU was one of those connected locations. ARPANET led to the internet in the mid to late 1980s, but it's an early example of how ARPA could support radical new technological developments. We will dig into the history of ARPA and DARPA in episode five, which features an interview with former DARPA director, Clint Kelly. But ARPA played a big role in funding these early decades of computer science at Carnegie Tech. In the book, Machines Who Think, a personal inquiry into the history and prospects of artificial intelligence, author Pamela McCordick discusses how ARPA was the major source of funding for computer science research in this country through the 1960s and early 1970s. She writes that, unlike many government funding agencies, ARPA does not use the peer review system, but disperses funds based on its own judgment of the best people doing the best projects related to its mission. They chose teams at Carnegie Mellon, MIT, Stanford, and the Stanford Research Institute. Well, in um, 1962, old famous guy, John Licklider, uh, was at the Department of Defense, HARPA, and uh, he thought that computers were more than just adding machines. So he won some funding, major bucks, for what was called centers of excellence and that was for computing outside of counting. In 1962, J.C.R. Licklider was put in charge of the then new Information Processing Techniques Office at ARPA. IPTO had an initial budget of 14 million. The first two recipients were MIT, Carnegie Tech, 
that was the founding money for computer science departments in the two schools. Now that was because of um, Perlis, Newell, and Simon. Uh, Newell and Simon had basically invented artificial intelligence. And Perlis was just Perlis. I mean, uh, a great person. In fact, that grant is given um, as a peer selection process. That is to say, the other universities have to agree where that money goes. That's Department of Defense tax money and so forth. So Perla sat me down in the basement and said, the problem is third world problem we have. We need this big computer, the center of excellence computer. In order to be able to attract really good faculty, something that they can publish on, they couldn't elsewhere. And we need that because we need peer uh, acceptance from everybody else. And we need that because that's what it takes for the ARPA grant, but we need the ARPA grant to get the computer. So we're in a third world situation. That's when we went off and did our own. So my big influence was, I don't think we could have had a computer science department and the large ARPA grants without the G21. We certainly couldn't have done it on the G20 that came here. Jesse is talking about the Bendix G20 and G21 computers that we discussed in the first episode of this series. His argument is that with the G21, CMU was able to open up a channel to large amounts of funding from ARPA. It's also worth noting that Jesse talks about that initial ARPA grant as being a peer-reviewed grant, while Pamela mentions that many of the later grants from ARPA and DARPA were not peer-reviewed. This starts, as best I can tell, with a... $400,000 grant in 1962. This will become the basis for CMU's broader expansions into artificial intelligence adjacent work. ARPA is interested in knowing how to better understand the ways that computers think. How can we trace logic? And so they disperse money to places like Carnegie Tech, like MIT, University of Illinois, University of Utah, to explore these questions. Having successfully garnered this first grant, and again, this is only a few years after the first computer has arrived on campus, the core team, led by Alan Perlis, decide to apply for an even larger grant, and this will be the foundational moment in which CMU will head down a path of becoming a computer-focused institution. There are a number of individuals and decision points in subsequent decades that will keep CMU down this path and refine its identity as an eventual internationally recognized well-regarded research university focusing on these electronic digital high technologies. But this moment begins in 1964 when Alan Perlis, Alan Newell, and a collaborator, Edward Schatz, the dean of research for the university faculty, and he will later become provost, submit a proposal to the Advanced Research Projects Agency of the Department of Defense called a proposal for the Center for the Study of Information Processing. And the Center for the Study of Information Processing is a catch-all phrase for 
an interdisciplinary, large-scale entity that will push the boundaries of computing and will draw in faculty from multiple divisions across the campus to use computers in creative and new ways. Computer science is only emerging as a field at this point in the early 1960s. This is the era in which folks who are doing work around computers still identify themselves mostly as systems analysts or cyberneticists. So there is not yet a formal department of computer science at Carnegie Tech. This center will both become the core of the eventual department because it will promote more intensive use of computers in the daily life of campus research, but it will also become the foundation for Carnegie Mellon's distinctive identity in subsequent decades as a school where an ethos of computing permeates most aspects of campus life. CMU is computer you. It's a place where you use computers if you're a computer scientist, if you're an electrical engineer, if you're a data scientist, but you're also likely to use computers if you're a behavioral psychologist or a neuroscientist or a dance choreographer or an electronic media artist or even a scholar of English literature or American history using digital humanities tools to advance your research. CMU becomes a place where computers are woven into the fabric of the, of the campus, and this is the beginning of that transformation. Commenting in 1984 about AI, as referenced in the book Funding a Revolution, Government Support for Computer Research, Alan Knoll says... The DARPA support of AI and computer science is a remarkable story of the nurturing of a new scientific field. DARPA began to build excellence in information processing in whatever fashion we thought best. The DARPA effort, or anything similar, had not been in our wildest imaginings. At the time, ARPA was interested in funding scientific merit rather than things like practical military tools. While this trend would shift in the 1980s, the ARPA model emerged. This resulted in a few interesting things. Carnegie Tech established a good relationship with ARPA, had continual funding in the 1960s, and was able to bring even more of the best people to campus to research and teach. The environment was a researcher's dream. So the idea is this grant in 64 will give Carnegie Mellon $3 million to set up this cross-campus entity. Now, they already have a cross-campus entity, but this is going to expand it. It will allow them to have a more complex computer. And they lay out these strings of ambitious goals. Not only are they going to tie-in information processing, which was the period term for computing, the use of electronic digital devices to aggregate, analyze, and then disseminate huge quantities of data. But they want to push the boundaries of what computing can do. 
And this will become the basis for so much of the later interdisciplinary work that emerges from this campus. The idea of centers of excellence is that the government is concentrating funding in a handful of places that can grow research labs to become hubs of specialized activity. This grant and subsequent renewals will become the basis for funding of computer science at Carnegie Mellon University. So when a computer science department is funded and is given an endowment of $5 million or so by Richard Mellon King in 1965, that endowment obviously helps, but the annual operating expenses for the, for the department will continue to mostly be paid for by DARPA. So I, I checked some numbers, and when Joseph Traub became department head in 1971, of the budget for the computer science department per annum, Carnegie Mellon University the central administration supplied $200,000 in funds every year. ARPA supplied $1.8 This outsized balance continues throughout the 1970s and 1980s, and there are periods of time when 60 or 65% of the total funding for computer science activities at CMU, particularly those concentrated in the computer science department, are paid for with defense-related grants. Alan Newell, speaking in a 1991 oral history interview, said of the 1960s, I didn't believe in projects, didn't have projects. All you had were people doing science, not little fiefdoms. It was all community, all because there weren't any financial constraints on people. All the students were funded out of a common pot, so the students just worked with whomever they wanted. Unfortunately, we do not have an oral history interview with Alan Newell in our collections at Carnegie Mellon University. He passed away at the age of 65 in 1992. For this episode, we're pulling direct quotes from an interview conducted by Arthur L. Norberg and the Charles Babbage Institute at the University of Minnesota. You can access the interview by visiting the University of Minnesota Digital Conservancy. There is no recording but you can read the transcript. Let's hear from Peter Freeman, who received his PhD from CMU in 1970. Well, I think certainly with the focus on research, with the uh, spirit and the sense of community that uh, CMU had and has, it was something that certainly one experienced, uh, the focus on doing big, audacious things, big, hairy, audacious things, as the phrase goes in our field, of uh, not being satisfied of just doing something incremental, but of just revolutionizing things. If everybody around you is doing 
incremental stuff, well, you sort of think, well, that's... And if everybody around you is trying to revolutionize things and do something that no one has ever even thought of doing, you say, oh, okay, well, I put my pants on one leg at a time uh, every morning just like they do. Maybe I can do something like that as well. They were very exciting things. Wow, look what we can do. And, of course, you're young then. There wasn't much else to compare to. So how did you know that you were doing something that was, which may be part of it, actually. You don't, it's like children, they're, they're uh, or, or young students. Um, they're too ignorant to know that they can't do something, and so they go out and do it and break ground in the process, yes. And we were young and ignorant. I also think that's what graduate school is about. Exactly. So I've tried to stay young and ignorant. <laughs> Ellen Knoll talks about how Carnegie Tech was a very cooperative school. A school without strict boundaries. A school coming out of the ARPA tradition. Graduate students pick collaborators without funding concerns. Micromanagement was not a thing here. Noel calls Alan Perlis one of the world's great non-administrators, saying, He did not believe in administration. Perlis believed that you solve problems by making some simple decisions. You might expect that this influx of funding allowed computer science at CMU to grow, and you'd be right. The number of faculty and students in the computer science department increased. In fact, Peter Freeman discusses a number of transitions that were occurring at that time. The transition from CIT to CMU. That was in 1967. The transition that I was a part of, I was actually admitted under the SNCS program as a graduate student in mathematics. Got a letter that summer saying, well, we've created this new department of computer science. You have a choice. Which one would you like? Uh, things were slow in those days. It took me about a millisecond to decide. As we grew, and I think this was around 68 or 69, there was not enough room in the uh, office space that we had for all the new students and I guess some new faculty by that point. And so there was, I remember one year, all of the new, all of the first year students were assigned desk space in the attic of Porter Hall. And that was fine for them. They bonded wonderfully with each other, but there was essentially a mutiny because they didn't know the faculty, they didn't know the older graduate students, and so there was almost a total lack of socialization. Either that year or a subsequent year, some were put in temporary trailers somewhere out on the lawn. As the department grew, there were those kinds of problems uh, or transitions from a smaller, really just a group of a bunch of us where you could have sort of what in the organizational world might be called uh, campfire management, namely you sort of all sit around and Val Perlis wanted to tell us something, he didn't have to issue a memo or anything, he just called us all and we all sat around in the little space outside his office. As we grew, there were those kinds of organizational transitions. These transitions and tensions, as we'll see in the next episode, actually resulted in some new courses and activities that, that bonded the computer science department. Well, uh, ultimately that led to the immigration course. It certainly was for many years a very important artifact in the immigration of 
uh, students and other activities, uh, what I guess was is called Black Friday, faculty sitting down once a year looking very carefully at all of the students at the same time. Both of those I might note are, are things that have been widely copied in the academic community. We will be talking more in depth about some of those activities in the next episode. It's been interesting to see how the ARPA funding has allowed the computer science department to grow at Carnegie Mellon. Alan Knoll, along with Alan Perlis and Herb Simon and many others, was very responsible for this growth. So let's close with a few words from Alan Newell discussing this topic. Here is a clip from the Q&A that followed a lecture called Desires and Diversions. This is Alan Newell's last lecture, and it was quite a big deal. People who were there tend to remember it vividly. The Q&A section wasn't available in previous versions of the lecture, it was recovered by archivists in the university archives a few years back. If you want to watch the full lecture, you can access it through the university archives video collection. I think you sell short your contribution of institution building, committee work, programmatic stuff, politicking for DARPA. And I just wonder what proportion of your total 90 hour week you think that took. And Huge. But you didn't mention that at all. Right. Worthless. Not true. Not true. Not true. I didn't mean to say it. I really didn't mean to say it. If you didn't do it, this audience wouldn't be here. I that's mean, the institution probably wouldn't exist the way it does today. They tell me that's true. Um, the, all I can say is, is this was a punk tape talk. So we can only talk about diversions that were punk tape. The diversion in my life, which is simply another diversion to, to feeling my obligation for the institution, feeling my obligations to ARPA, to sort of continually doing all that activity is, is kind of the continuous part of the spectrum. Okay, it goes on forever, it's going all my life, takes um, 30 hours a week leaving the other, or 50 to be, to be spent on, on, on other things. And most of my life I have sort of felt that that was simply an obligation that one did as a member of the scientific scientific world, and, and within that, one sort of decided whether, in fact, you spend more time on institution building and less time on being members of programming committees and so forth. You sort of make little weights. So, in fact, it has been a big part of my life, and, and, and so now i got to redeem myself, um, and I'm very proud of it. Okay, I'm, I'm really proud of this environment, and, you know, and I'm really proud of the way it's developed. Thank you for listening to Cut Pathways. Next time, we'll discuss a minor crisis at the beginning of the 1970s, when the computer science department lost a founding member. See you next time. Cut Pathways is a production of the Oral History Program at Carnegie Mellon University. This episode was written and edited by Catherine and Dave. And Dave made all the sounds. All the oral histories are available within the university archives, housed in the Carnegie Mellon University libraries.